welcome to Dog Logical. I'm your host, Renee Rhodes, the behavior and training specialist behind R Plus Dogs. Here at Dog Logical, I hope to make sense of your dog's behavior and give you insight that gives you the best relationship possible. If you'd like to know more about me or you're looking for your next dog professional to work with, you can find me at rplusdogs.com. And with that, let's get into the podcast. Hi guys, and welcome to this episode. We are so lucky to have Marlena Riba and the amazing Harold with us today. Marlena, would you like to just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and what you do? Sure. Um, well, first, uh, thank you for having me on. Um, I am a um, clinical psychologist. Um, currently, I'm a professor of psychology at a university. Um, my kind of area of focus um, is in evidence-based treatments, specifically behavioral treatments. Um, I focus on developing um, evidence-based strategies for um, individuals with psychological issues, particularly those that are experiencing those issues um, within a medical population. Um, so that's kind of my primary area um, of clinical and research interest. But I also focus on um, essentially figuring out how do we best disseminate these interventions that we know are effective um, to people that need, need them the most, right? So how do we get psychologists and other mental health professionals to use the science and use the evidence um, in a way that um, will be most effective and getting that information out there? That is excellent. Like, <laughs> oh, that's, how do you find that? How do you find the, the kind of struggle to get people to, to think in, in terms of using the, the science? This, um, so, well, it's kind of a multi-level um, multi problem, right? So some <laughs> yeah. of it is just, some of it is on kind of um, therapist factors, right? So their background, their attitudes towards particular interventions, um, maybe lack of knowledge, um, then we have kind of setting limitations. So particularly in different hospitals, you know, maybe you only have um, a given number of sessions that you're allowed to have, or you have access to that patient only for a particular period of time. So if I tell you that the most effective intervention maybe is something that is long-term, there's not a quick fix, mm -hmm. right? That, that therapist or that mental health provider might say, well, sorry, can't do given the limitations that I'm working in. Um, so some of that is um, kind of at the level of the profession. The other factors would be more patient factors. And that is um, just as simple as people not knowing what mental health professional to go to for what issues, right? Mm -hmm. And if they go to, let's say, um, I don't know, a, you know, a therapist that maybe isn't using evidence-based practices and they try that intervention and it doesn't work. Well, maybe they've written off therapy altogether because they'll say, well, I've tried it. It didn't work for me, but it didn't work because you aren't using the evidence-based treatment that should have been given. And unfortunately, you know, within our healthcare system and just in the mental health profession, um, you know, it is more more likely that people are getting treatments that aren't supported by evidence than evidence-based treatments that we know work. 
So there is such a parallel between everything that you've just said and doctorating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, and it, I've come to that realization actually um, yeah. in the last couple of months and especially since adopting Harold. I didn't know anything about your your background. So this is very, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> this is interesting. Um, yep. Yeah, so, so many parallels. So uh, given your kind of professional experience and what you do to your day-to-day, your previous experience with dogs, like you just mentioned that you you're realizing that this is also something that's concurrent in in this industry. What's your previous have, have you had previous experience with dogs or is Harold kind of your your first? Um, I have had previous experiences. Uh, I've had dogs all of my life. Um, prior to having Harold, I had a Rottweiler and a toy poodle, um, which is I know a weird combination. Um, <laughs> Sometimes life just kind of throws throws these things at us, um, but I I think when I with my prior kind of experiences and the dogs that I had um, most in most of those situations I had them at an early age so they didn't didn't have some of these I don't want to call them issues but let's say you know quirks that a dog that has had many you know a, a poor history and a lot of cards kind of stacked against it. And so, you know, in my previous experience with dogs, um, it wasn't, although, you know, now I, under, I understand how important it is to train all of your dogs, and I've always done that, but it wasn't as imperative for me before to figure out how do I do this in the best and most efficient way, right? So I could kind of get around with maybe not being as consistent as I should have been um, previously. And do you think that there was a, a kind of a, a gap between what you did in your day to day and the way that you handled your dogs? Or did it, did you not think about, did you not make that connection? Oh, so um, that's actually a, a really good question and something that I was hoping we would be able to go into in a little bit more detail because you know, when I first, I met Harold by volunteering at um, the local shelter here. And when I um, finally decided to adopt him, you know, I remember thinking to myself, okay, well, this is, you know, kind of a clinical case, if you will. Like if I'm thinking as a, you know, as a psychologist, this is a clinical case. This isn't going to be just, you know, it's not going to be enough for me just to teach this dog to, you know, sit and, you know, shake and do all these kind of basic obedience sort, sort, sort of things. Quite frankly, I didn't care if he listened to me, if, if I told him to sit. I needed to make sure that I mitigated some of these more severe issues that he was presenting with. Um, he had a little bit of a bite history. Um, he had severe, severe separation anxiety. And so when I was thinking about it from just a psychological standpoint, you know, if, if this was you know, a person coming into therapy, I wouldn't be teaching, you know, or I wouldn't be going over some of the kind of um, basic, surface, basic, you know, basic <laughs> kind of, you know, life advice, but more clinical treatments, right? You, it, it's no longer just feeling sad once in a while. Now we're talking about clinical depression. And so those treatments are going to look very different. And so one of the things that I struggled with when I first adopted Harold um, you know, in my mind, I knew that we were going to have to figure out sort of this sweet spot. He would eventually kind of, you know, decompress, 
learn new things, more importantly, unlearn some things, right? Um, and in the meantime, I would meet him, whether it be halfway or, you know, 60, 40, wherever that sweet spot was going to be. And that meant me kind of managing the environment. So if that meant that, you know, he, he wouldn't be able to go to some places, then that's what I kind of took on as my responsibility and whatever that sweet spot eventually would be, that's where Harold and I would live. Um, and Initially, I actually used to joke and say, well, you know, if it, if he doesn't make any improvements, if I can't make any headway, then we'll, you know, live off of the land in the middle of somewhere, <laughs> in the middle of somewhere, and then we'll just, you know, from a management standpoint, um, you know, live out the rest of his years. Um, obviously, you know, I, that was partly a joke, but I, I wasn't naive to the fact that a lot of management was going to be involved. Right. To be honest, that sounds amazing to me, and my dogs aren't really reactive. Right, and so and sometimes even now I'm like, you know what? Maybe that wouldn't have been such a bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, but the struggle that I was having at the beginning is because I was, I mean, I was very committed to making sure that I was doing absolutely everything I could to allow him to be the best dog that he could be. Right. So it wasn't just the fact that he was in the shelter for two years, and just from that. I knew he would have to decompress, but prior to being in a shelter, his life was miserable, right? He came in in very bad shape. It took very, a very long time, even for the shelter staff to, you know, win his trust and for him to know how to be a dog, right? So it wasn't just about this dog has been in a shelter and in a stressful environment. It was a whole life history of negative experiences. So, it, you know, I was prepared for it to be an uphill um, kind of, I don't want to say it uphill bad, but it wasn't going to be easy. Right. And so I remember even prior to bringing him home, um, I was reading everything that I could, you know, looking through every article online, um, and trying to weave through so much information out there or that we have out there about, well, what is effective for this particular case? And I thought about it very in the same way that I would if I was looking for an intervention for a therapy patient, right? I know that there's an intervention out there for this particular case, and the evidence certainly is out there that will tell me what strategy I need to use to make this person better. But even with that being my background, what I found was that it was difficult for me to weed through all the misinformation when it came to dog training, right? I mean, it would kind of just seemed like, you know, a free for all, you would go to one source and, you know, they would recommend something completely opposite from somebody else. Um, I reached out to some trainers that, um, you know, I quickly got off the phone with them because just knowing, you know, kind of behavioral theory and principles, the things that they were recommending did not, coincide with that at all, right? And so I felt like, well, geez, how is the average person that doesn't even know how to look through the research supposed to figure out what, what is the appropriate method? Um, and so then I started to dig a little deeper, looking at you know some scientific journal articles in, in some of these cases, um, looked, a lot of, looked up a lot of um, behavioral veterinary like clinics and labs and places that were 
studying these types of situations. Um, and ultimately, I consulted with a behavioral consultant, um, Michael Siskashio. I hope I said his last name correctly. Um, yes. Um, did I say it correctly? I think I think so. Or close enough. I am I'm horrible with names. I know how to say it, but yes. um, yeah, no, no. <laughs> I, yes. Um, I had said so. Yes. Um, wonderful person. We spent, I think, two hours um, having a, a Skype meeting. And in many ways, that was my light bulb moment because I admitted to him like, hey, my only goal for this dog is to make sure that I don't do anything to make it worse. And some of the, you know, advice that I was, you know, getting or, you know, looking up <laughs> or when I talked to some of these, you know, trainers, and I think I've reached out, I mean, to probably more than I can, you know, more than I can count, but, um, you know, one of the things, and, you know, we now know is, you know, a myth is this whole like dominance theory and showing the dog who's boss and whatever else. Um, and I'll kind of go back later and tell you some of the challenges I had at first bringing him home, um, particularly with his reaction to my mother. Um, but what I knew right away wouldn't work, which is what some of, some of the advice that I was getting would be to correct his behavior if he would, you know, lunge at my mom or lunge at another person. And he never really bit, but he had these air snaps, right? Mm -hmm. And there was no, there was no warning. So he would be laying laying down on the couch, seemingly relaxing. And all of a sudden he's clear across the room. So there was no growl, no, no, I'm not comfortable, right? Um, or at least if you weren't paying attention, that's what it would seem like, right? Yeah. I learned over time that the signs were actually really clear. He would, his neck would get a little longer. He made eye contact for like a split second too long. And I used to kind of doubt myself whether or not like some, is something about to happen? Should I intervene? And I learned to trust that and intervene at that point. But what I noticed that when these things happened, and unfortunately, you know, with as much management as you put into place, it's kind of inevitable at some point. Um, but what I would see is that, you know, if he, you know, let's say, you know, jumped towards my mom and kind of did that air snap thing, I could actually hear his jaw close which was pretty you know, terrifying. Um, but when I went to try to defuse the situation, I immediately saw a dog that was in complete fear. He would sit down, shake and cower, yeah. right? And so I thought I'm supposed to correct this, right? First of all, I mean, that, it was just heartbreaking to see. I was in many cases more worried about Harold than, than the person he, <laughs> you know, sorry mom. To. sorry, mom, you're fine, but my dog is clearly stressed out here. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so often what I would do and, you know, and admittedly at that point, I, I didn't know the appropriate response. Right. And so all I, all I did, I would, you know, put him on, put him on a leash and I would say, come on, Harold, let's walk it off. And we would just go for a walk. And sometimes, you know, my mom would join or whatever. Um, but I got to sort of this point, this point where I felt, am I doing all that I can 
to make life easier for this dog. I felt like he had already gone through enough. And even if none of this ever improves, I just want him to have, to be able to experience life with joy at some point, right? Cause he hadn't had that. And so my other thing was that, well, how many times if I use this approach of correcting this undesired behavior, how many times would he have to do that? Right. And how many people would I have to put at risk for me to finally say, okay, he now he's finally learned his lesson. Right. I mean, the idea, what my hope was that I could prevent it. I didn't want to just wait for it to happen and then do damage control. I wanted it not to happen. And so that's when kind of my wheels started to, to turn and I realized that, you know what, everything you see on TV with, you know, these dog trainers having like this magic solution for some of these problems, um, that is not the answer. And so when I spoke with um, Michael during our call and I told him that my goal was, I didn't want this dog just to get any worse. We had a very, you know, very similar conversation to how you and I started, started off. And, and he basically said the same thing that there's so many parallels between what we see in the um, health healthcare field and um, in the dog training industry, right? And just, just to kind of weed through what's effective, what's not. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't, don't have the resources or the time um, to navigate through that. And when he told me that, hey, behavioral theory is behavioral theory, there is no like different approach that you, that you would take and these principles still you know, apply with the dog. I mean, as a, a professor of psychology who teaches these theories in class, I mean, I felt like, how did I even buy into some of some of this information, right? I'm I'm literally standing up in front of class teaching people about classical conditioning, desensitization, operant conditioning, and then it took having Harold to realize that hey, why isn't the rest of the world applying this to dog training, right? Why why isn't this just standard practice? Um, so, you know, luckily, I think it. There's more and more um, dog trainers from as, you know, as far as I can tell that are advocating for that. And that, that makes my heart happen the same way it does when I see it happening in um, the healthcare field. But in, in both areas, I think we still have a long way to go. Yeah, and it's interesting because the effective is subjective i think one person would look at something and go well that was effective because it stopped that behavior and then another person would look at that and go well that's not effective because of the you know the fallout from using the punishment or from right. using the, the correction so when people look at things i think they can kind of you know make up their own assumptions of the behavior that they want as their endpoint and that's where we fall into. And also, I mean, I'm, I order things on Amazon and as soon as I order them, I can't wait for them to get here. I'm, you know, very behavior. And I think that's what we have with, with dog training is we, mm -hmm. we see that as I want that to stop happening. That is incompatible right. with, you know, my life and my, my wants and needs. And if I can stop that immediately, 
that's what I want. And Perfect. it yep. doesn't work with a living creature. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, a, a similarly, it, I think part of how people interpret whether or not something is effective or, or not is, you know, quite frankly, um, maybe not having the experience of interpreting um, research or just science literacy, right? So we have kind of these, you know, memes, headline news, whatever, and without knowing the context, without knowing, you know, all the kind of nuances of, of what is going on, um, people miss the big picture. You know, an example, like you just mentioned, another example about the fallout and wanting an immediate result happens all the time with people with depression, right? So we have thousands and thousands of studies that show us that for long-term long use of antidepressants um, is not recommended, right? It's actually the most effective treatment for clinical depression is cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, granted, in some situations, you might have the medication and the therapy, um, but the idea is to eventually get off the antidepressant, right? But behavior is complex. And I think that's, that's part of the, the thing that is sometimes missing and that, that people don't understand. And maybe the reason why we don't see, you know, TV shows that are using more science-based dog training techniques is because that process takes time. Right? You're not going <laughs> to capture that in an episode. So that makes for boring TV. You know, therapy is, is boring in the same way as well, because it, it is a gradual process. You know, I mean, you can think about any New Year's resolution you've ever made. Most people don't stick to them, right? So we can't change our own behavior effectively, yet we expect our dogs to be able to do that um, overnight just because you had one you know, one training session, or you've already told them one time what not to do. It's more Absolutely. about teaching the dog what to do, you yeah. know? I, I think that's hitting the nail on the head is like the common, you know, is he knows he's not supposed to do this. And it's like, if he knew he wasn't supposed to be doing this and he knew that this was going to upset you, he would not be doing it. <laughs> like, right. he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Right. The communication yeah. is, we have two separate forms of communication. We can- right just as you illustrated, you can learn to read your dog's communication, but you have to take the time and educate yourself in order to do so. And if you don't, you miss all the, the subtle signs. You miss everything. Right. It's the kind of, you know, the classic, the, he bit out of nowhere or they're barking at nothing. Or, right. you know, he just happened to lunge at this other dog, even though, oh, we were just right. getting- For no reason, yeah. 20 minutes. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's, you know, and it's, and it's just- and I think, I think also what another kind of barrier to, you know, disseminating these evidence-based practices is that these are fields where people are very passionate, right? They care about the dogs. Um, and so sometimes it's, I don't want to say it's like a matter of, you know, egos or something like that, but okay, well, you know, there's been times since I've had Harold where as much as I've tried to do, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, my life is basically um, 
focused on, <laughs> on Harold. I'm pretty obsessed <laughs> with my dog, right? So there's not much that I don't do that, wrong I, with that. Right, that I'm not thinking about. <laughs> Where's Harold? What's he doing? You know? Um, and so as, as devoted as I feel like I am to him and as, as hard as I try to um, manage all of these things, it, I'm, I can't, you, you, there will be kind of slip ups and things will still happen, right? But those are kind of opportunities to learn more about the dog, right? So maybe I thought that he um, has now become comfortable with letting, um, you know, meeting people outside or whatever else. But when I sit outside at a restaurant and a waiter maybe lingers around for too long, right? All of a sudden, maybe he might react or I see him be uncomfortable. Well, and, and now it's not so much about, oh, well, clearly he hasn't, you know, learned to ignore people outside or whatever the case may be. Um, but maybe it's just the fact that we're in a different context, in a different environment, right? So these things don't always generalize and you have to look at the big picture. And we do that you know, in therapy with humans. And I think the same applies, um, you know, with, with dogs and all living creatures. Absolutely. I mean, one of the first things that I look at whenever I, I have a client or someone contacts me about a dog's, you know, behavior, that's for them, you know, whatever abnormal or whatever stereotype we want to give to it. But I say, what happened just before that? Or what right. happened, you know, what was, where, where were you when this happened? And people don't think about that. They think about the, or they generally don't think about that. They think about the behavior and how that, you know, they, from right. that, that's the start point and everything that happened afterwards. And it's, if we can look at, well, what, what was the causation of that? Why, why right. did this behavior happen? And how can we manage that situation or maybe take steps so that that behavior can't happen in the future right. or we can step in and say right okay I'm going to advocate for my dog in this situation and I'm yep. going to move him before it escalates into something yes yeah exactly and yeah and I mean I can give you a you know a perfect example of that I've um it, so Harold Harold's main issues and um part of his history at the shelter was that he had been returned three times so he had three failed adoptions prior to me adopting him. Um, and part of, you know, the, and it usually, usually got returned and sometimes like a day later, sometimes it was a week later, um, but, you know, very quickly he came back to the shelter and it was always devastating. And he had been there for so long that he had kind of become the resident shelter dog that everyone loved, right? Because in the shelter, he seemed like he was, you know, just, a, a great dog, sad, kind of depressed. Um, he, and I mean, it, it breaks my heart to think about it now, but he would drool profusely. I mean, his whole kennel would be covered in drool because he was so anxious. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so he had severe separation anxiety. So he got returned, I believe once because of that. Um, the, and then the other times is because of this kind of, um, Again, I, I don't think he had situations where he actually um, caused injury to another person, but he definitely had kind of guarding tendencies where he would seemingly, like we've just talked about, out of nowhere, 
um, either do air snap or kind of like a, maybe like a level one bite, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, I actually forgot where I was going with this story, but, <laughs> but, but, but what, um, I'm sorry, what was the question? This may be a part we need to edit out. <laughs> um, you're talking about examples of, so when he, when he was oh, a doctor yes. three times. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Um, so one of the things that we had to work on for a very long time, because when I first got him, um, I was actually, I had just moved back to the area. I was, um, living with my parents as my house was still getting, getting built. Um, and I knew eventually it would just be me and Harold. But in the meantime, um, because Harold had kind of deteriorated in the shelter and was more and more anxious and was starting to get medicated and every time I would bring him back to the kennel after our walk. Um, he was really stressed out. So I said, okay, I can't wait, you know, all this time until the house is ready. We have to figure something out now. Um, and I have to bring him to my parents' house. So when I had him at my parents' house, even with them, even after months of being, you know, in that environment, he would still give my parents the side eye, right? Like it was always still, he was just, always just under kind of the threshold of back up you're walking towards our direction you know um and so we worked very hard with like classical conditioning and having him become less fearful of my parents because that was really the underlying issue um and and he now accepts my family, even if they come unannounced into my house, my, my sister, some of my close friends, like he, he has been able to generalize that. And generally speaking, all is good. However, um, I never let my guard down, even when, you know, I have a neighbor that says, oh, look, he likes me or, you know, whatever else. I, I don't take the risk. So I always just try to mitigate those situations. And and an example of, you know, kind of considering what happens before is that sometimes I think it may not even be the immediate situation um, that triggers whatever behavior. So, you know, for example, the other day I had a couple of people over, he was doing perfectly fine. Um, You know, proper introductions, everything was good. I had a couple, People actually that day come and install some um, furniture. I had him behind a little gate. He sat on his bed perfectly. Everything was wonderful. Um, I had a foster dog. <laughs> At the same time, I had a foster dog who he wasn't a big fan of, but again, separated. And individually, he could tolerate all of those things perfectly and comfortably lay on the couch and everything was perfect. But I think all of those things happening in one day was a little too much for him. So then yeah. he had a perfectly, you know, someone that he knows came, came into the house and all of a sudden I saw him be very tense, you know, given that kind of hard stare and do all of those things that he hadn't demonstrated in months, right? And so I think sometimes it's, it's just, just like a person, you know, on some days you can tolerate certain stressors and not react. And in other days you may have had such a stressful day 
and you get home, you find, you know, maybe you're craving cereal and you're out of milk and that puts you over the edge. <laughs> you know, it may be some, it may be something um, small. And so I think looking at it more from a, um, on a, on a bigger level, right? Like a, the big picture idea, it's not necessarily these specific triggers that people often look for that are the answer. Sometimes that trigger may be the trigger that elicits an undesired behavior, but in other times, maybe it was in a different context or maybe the dog is having a better day, Yeah. right? So, we generally like to, in the kind of canine profession, I don't know if it's it's comparative than yours, but we say like the dog's bucket is full. Like they have had right. too much going in, not enough, not enough time to decompress, not enough time for the dog to, you know, be able to just have that space and time to calm a little bit. Or, right. Exactly. And then it's it, the bucket overflows. And when the bucket overflows, we have to allow more time to, to decompress afterwards, because if we just push and push and push, we're not going to get anywhere. Right. Abs yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, now it's been two years that I, I mean, almost two years that I've had him. Um, and that's what I mean. Like, those are the things that, you know, instead of saying, okay, this dog isn't, you know, still has this issue. I mean, I look at that and I say, okay, well, that's a, just an opportunity for me to learn more about my dog and know what I need to do better in the future to help make it a more pleasant experience for him or less stressful. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head because we as people, we have days like this, you know, you can right. take a person who's mild mannered and if they're, you know, if they're having a stressful day or maybe they didn't sleep well, or, you know, yeah. their car didn't start or say, and that person snaps and everybody goes, Oh, you know, you, you feel right. it all right. It's like, but every, right. every, you know, kind of <laughs> yeah, person has that ability to do it. And so do our dogs. It's exactly. just the consequences for our dogs are so much greater. If a person snaps at you and go, okay, you know, right. oh, calm down. But your dog snaps at you and, and suddenly right. And the, turned up. And the sad down. thing is that, you know, that our dogs don't have the ability to explain themselves to us, right? So I, I can say, man, I'm, I'm really sorry I did that earlier today. You know, it's just been a tough day. I woke up and this happened and this. And all of a sudden, maybe my behavior is excused and it's justifiable. Right. But it, a dog doesn't have the ability to communicate that to us. And also they don't. Unfortunately, I think some dogs or some owners don't give their dogs an opportunity to say no. Right. No, if they yeah. don't want to if they don't want to greet a person, you know, or you see that they're slightly uncomfortable, but someone is excited to see them. I mean, I probably tell people all the time. I mean, I more so than not, I tell people, no, you can't pet my dog. Um, <laughs> and, and, and to be honest, I think a lot of the times, um, because he doesn't have these issues outside, right? He, he will a hundred percent. If I let everyone in the world pet him outside, he would probably be fine. But part of it is that I don't want everybody on the street hugging me. Right. And so, exactly. you know, if you think about it, like if it was, you know, a cute kid, you know, part of, part of it is like we filter the world for, you know, children. And I tried to do that for Harold. So it, you don't have to be stressed every time we encounter an individual or, you know, whatever. So I don't, I say no for him, even if maybe he would have accepted, you know, 
an uncomfortable hug or getting be petted or or whatever else. So I think it's just important more, just to set those boundaries and set a precedence. Yeah, I read a I think it was an article a couple of years ago that talked about um, children and how they're forced to kiss or hug relatives that maybe they don't want to kiss and hug uh, yeah, and how <laughs> yeah and I think we do that we do that similarly with our dogs you know say hi say hi right. and kind of push push these you know situations on our dogs because our dogs need to be social and they need to be good you know mannered dogs when they're outside so surely you know very friendly dogs but right. that kind of stuck with me because I thought wow, I never thought about it like that you know we do and it, we even guilt the child by saying, oh, you don't want to give me a call. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and I think some of it is just also like social pressure, yeah. right? Because you don't want people to, and especially with a dog that looks like Harold, um, oh, 100%. You know, who's, who's like, you know, he can be very intimidating um, just by his appearance. Um, if I, if I, but a lot, so locally, a lot of people know him because he's been, you know, in, in the news before for, you know, saving the pups, saving six puppies and all this. I don't know if you um, were able to see that on the video. I um, <laughs> but so he's got this whole kind of local army of friends, right, that just absolutely love him and everyone recognizes him wherever we go. And so, you know, I think sometimes people think that if they say, no, you can't pet my dog it somehow suggests that the dog is bad or it's aggressive or you know whatever else and and literally there are days that harold may be in a just prancing around happy as can be and i know there's no risk of you know someone just saying oh hi harold and giving him a quick little pet and move and moving on um and sometimes I allow for that to happen and everything, you know, everything is fine. But on other days, it's like, hey, we're just trying to enjoy our walk, right? It's like sitting in the airplane <laughs> on an airplane and you put in your headbuds because you don't want to start a conversation with the person next to you, you know? So it's, you know, sometimes you just want to let them be. And equally, we don't treat any, any living creature other than, you know, dogs and pets and things like we do with, with dogs because we feel that it's okay to just walk up to a dog and extend our hand and touch the dog and you know I've had clients where people have um kind of grabbed their dog or mm -hmm. um grabbed the dog's head and pulled like it, restrained it. Yeah, yeah I mean I have um I have two dogs and um one of them is a, a big black German shepherd and I have mm -hmm. been I've been shocked sometimes because I had one guy particularly, and I was caught completely off guard and maybe I was a little bit um, rude, but I was upset that this person had done it. He saw Lycan, dropped to his knees directly in front of him, grabbed his face, put his face to, to Lycan's face, mm -hmm. and then kind of shook his head and went, oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> then looked up at me while he's, you know, just, just paused and says, oh, is it okay if I say hi? And of course I could. <laughs> yeah. I was I wasn't mean I wouldn't say but right. I was hurt um and I just said please don't do that again because if you know if that happens and and liking gets a little bit uncomfortable or you know if he's taken by surprise or so, you know even if there's just a an air snap or right yep. it, the implications on him it, it it only impacts him and right and I think sometimes it's the it's people it's the person that wants to feel better that the dog likes them right 
And yeah. so it's, oh, look, he's, he's great. He like, and, and again, it's, you know, I, I keep using this as an example, but again, it, when I advocate, I just see it as me advocating for my dog. So sometimes when I tell people, no, you can't pet him. It's not because I think he's going to bite them or react or some, or, you know, something like that, because in, again, in most cases, I don't think he's ever done that in, in public. The only time there's ever been any issues is when he's at home on his own, like turf. Um, or when, well, I guess sometime there was an incident at a restaurant, but we were kind of stationary sitting at a table. So that became our little space, right? Yeah. But just, you know, just on a walk that that's usually not something that um, I worry about, but I almost, and I mean, and I hate to say it, but, you know, because I know people tend to look at Harold and that intim intimidation factor is there. I almost want it to be a lesson for other dogs. Like don't not, don't not just do that to my dog, but also don't do it to the cute fluffy dog across the street, right? Like that, that, that is just something that is just poor manners for lack of, lack of a better word, no, you know? Like you said, I've had clients now reminded quite a few small dogs where people have just come and pick their dog up. And yeah. you're like, uh, or what, you know, why would you do that to a small child? You'd be right. in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think so, yeah. it is also <laughs> one of those situations with him where, you know, he, that advocating for him can give him consent as well. Because if he turns around and, and moves towards that person and says, actually, you know, I would like, then that, that is him then consenting for that. So right. That, absolutely approach of that person and then he's kind of thrust upon you know this this interaction that he may not want but equally if he chooses to do that's something completely different yeah yeah again and i and i think that just goes back to giving them the opportunity to be able to tell us you know tell us no and original you know when i first started to kind of do that when people ask to pet him um, you know, and again, a lot of people know him. He's got like the one funny ear. So people recognize us all the time. Um, and again, most of the time it's fine, but part of the reason why I was also doing that and making that boundary is because like he hadn't had any experiences in his life to show him that like the outside world is safe. Right. And so if I continue to put him in these situations where he may be uncomfortable, then I felt like I wasn't doing my duty and having and being able to show him that not everything is a scary, scary experience. Right. And he didn't have to worry about being on the defense. I would kind of do that for him. So it almost became like a partnership of figuring out who's comfortable. Is he is he consenting to this? interaction and if he is then great and if I saw that he was just kind of standing there and sometimes he would just kind of slowly look back at me um <laughs> and I would say no thank you right <laughs> that's yeah. his code he's like right that would be his code. This guy. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> recently saw um that you were muzzle training him so is this something that is kind of new for him or have you been doing this for a while um I've been doing it for um a while when I so my initially I wanted to muzzle train him because um when I one of my biggest kind of 
I guess uh, one of the things that I was anxious about at first was taking him to the vet. Um, and so I know that at the shelter and in many of his other, um, in his like medical records, it clearly sa said, you know, sedated, does not like restraint. Um, so any vet visit meant that he had to be sedated. Um, even for, you know, the most minor like checkup, it didn't even have to be like a, in, you know, invasive procedure or anything like that. And so on our very first visit um, to the vet, when I um, took him, I think it, he was due to go to the vet maybe like two weeks after I had adopted him. So everything was still very new. Um, I took him to, to the vet and, you know, they did, they did muzzle him. But, you know, long story short, like it, it, the whole experience wasn't, wasn't very pleasant for neither me or Harold. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was one of those muzzles where they're like the cloth ones where their whole yeah. mouth is just kind of, you know, um, closed and they can't pant or, you know, um, it's just very, it looks very uncomfortable. I imagine it feels even worse. Um, so even with that, then they had to do a couple of procedures and even with the muzzle, um, they had to sedate him and that whole experience was just, you know, very stressful. And I thought, goodness, like, how are we ever going to make sure that he always gets the proper care if this is always going to be such an aversive experience and he has to be, you know, I mean, sed I mean, sedating a dog regularly surely can't be, you no. know, the, a, a good thing. Um, and so, you know, I'm taking him back out to the car and he's kind of wobbling and it, it was just, it was just hard for me to see. And so I thought, okay, I, and at this point I had done enough kind of research prior to adopting him that in the back of my mind, I thought, okay, well, if, you know, these issues kind of continue, I can always maybe use a muzzle. Um, and I stumbled upon the muzzle up project and, that kind of um, gave me that idea. But initially the purpose of muzzle training him, or at least the way I thought about it was, okay, I'm gonna be able to use a basket muzzle for when he goes to the vet. Um, he's not gonna have to have that uncomfortable cloth one that you know restricts his ability to you know pant and receive treats and all these things. Um, and it'll just keep everyone kind of you know safe and um, whatever else. And then other vet that I ended up going to, um, actually suggested that for some dogs that can actually relax the environment during the appointment, right? Because it kind of cues them not, not to bite, not to react. Then the staff doesn't have to restrain him as much. And so it's just all around a better experience. And of course, if, if they needed to for something more invasive and they had to sedate him, I would have said fine. But even on the off chance that this whole muzzle thing could have worked, I was all about it. And um, so that's how it started. But then after my um, consultation with um, the behavioral consultant, Michael, what, one of the things that we ended up talking about is sort of 
or one of the things that I asked is, well, how will I know when he's getting better? Right. Meaning how do I know that when, when in a home environment, I can have him, you know, around, you know, my parents and things, how do I know that I can now not basically have him, you know, tied, tied to my waist for, you know, safety purposes or, or put up or in a, you know, separate area, how will I be able to safely know that he's better? Because if, if the behavior, behavior isn't improving, again, I can't afford to say, hey, mom, I have this, you know, 85 pound pit bull, let's just test it out to see if, um, <laughs> if he's going to come, if he's going to come after anyone, right? Um, and so that Michael gave me the idea of using a muzzle in the home to be able to assess that. And, and he said the same thing, you know, if, if they're conditioned to it properly, it, it becomes a non-aversive kind of thing. They can eat, they can play in it, they can pant, right? Like all of these things. And the other people in the household are more at ease because, well, you know, if he does react, no one is in, you know, real danger. Yeah. Um, and so I started to think of it more as a assessment tool in a way, right, of being able to still give him freedom, giving him the ability to, you know, say no, but not putting him or anyone else at risk. And also, yeah. you know, sometimes with him having it on outside, if I don't want to interact with anyone, maybe more so than, than Harold, <laughs> having the muzzle usually makes people, um, you know, less hesitant to run up and grab his face. <laughs> yes, that is one of the benefits of sometimes when I have clients who have those issues is thinking about using that as a, as a tactic to avoid, especially small, cute, fluffy dogs that everyone gets a little yeah. bit too close. Yeah, it's yeah. like slap a muzzle on that dog and properly conditioned. And we have a dog who, oh, you know, oh, that dog, stay away from that dog. That's a bad dog. Right. Um, so it's like an instant, <laughs> instant right. way for people to make that assessment on their own. And, and, yeah. right. and you know, and it's, and, you know, I guess there are some um, good things about that. And the downside of it is that, you know, there is a lot of stigma around muzzled dogs, right? And so there's been plenty of times that I've gotten really rude comments. Hmm. Um, like, you know, I had a lady once actually in, in the vet's office of all places, right, that, um, that said something to me, or she was talking to Harold, but obviously the comment was to me. And she <laughs> said, she said something like, Oh, you poor thing. Why is your mom embarrassing you like that? Tell her to take that thing off. And I thought, <laughs> lady, like, I mean, the alternative is that my dog is going to get sedated. Right. And he, yeah. like the, you're matter of fact, I would prefer you muzzle your dog. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so um, recently the post that I made, I, I ordered a custom muzzle for him because a lot of the ones that, you know, you, you buy are just kind of like the standard black ones. Yeah. Um, and now I kind of just want to do my part and be like, hey, yes, I am drawing more attention to this muzzle because it is a good thing. And we are wearing it proudly. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I am under the very, very firm 
consideration that all dogs should yes. be muzzle trained, even yes. if they don't have to wear them for, you know, behavioral concerns or anything like sure. that. Both of my dogs are. Um, there are situations we took Nero on a road trip um, to France and Spain once, and he had to wear a muzzle when he went through the, the kind of customs area. Oh, and right, yeah. that was the first time that I thought like, oh, um, you know, I'm right. muzzled. What if, like, why? Yeah. Um, and so I, I, at the time I didn't muzzle train him. This was a number of years ago. And I just thought, oh, he'll be fine with it. It's, you know, it's not that long or whatever. And he did not, he doesn't like anything on his what face if, at all. Yeah. And, you know, I, I put it on maybe a few minutes before we were about to pass through. And that was a very, very steep learning curve for me because yeah, I just yeah. thought, oh, yeah, wow. Absolutely. I am so sorry for doing that to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, and in, and in other situations, um, you know, one of the things that I've been able to also do, which I thought would never be possible with, with Harold, um, because he also is dog selective, although not on, on site. So he'll never like lunge at a dog if he's walking on the street or anything like that. Um, but if a dog approaches him or if, if he, if, if a dog maybe like tries to jump on him or something like that, he will he will absolutely and react. Um, although there's been situations when he was still at the shelter with some dogs, he's fine, but it's, but I know it would only take that one, maybe, you know, whatever interaction between him and another dog that things could just end not, in a good way, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but having said that, he, I have been able to foster um, several dogs since I've since I've had him, and we've only re recently started doing that. I didn't do it the first year that I had him, um, but the muzzle in that situation has also been like the game a game changer, right? So. Sometimes I see that he wants to, inter you know, interact with the dog and, and he's actually like happy to see them and it's not a um, like a stressful situation for him, not all of them, but you know, some he's more, like more friendly with than others. But I would still never just put them together and say, oh, look, they seem to be getting along, right? Um, and so in those situations, like, I'll muzzle both dogs and they'll be happiest can be going on a walk together or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, but under no other circumstances would I, would I jeopardize um, kind of the recovery of the foster dog or put Harold in a position where he might fail, right? Yeah. So um, that's been helpful in those situations as well. Yeah, and I thought I sometimes think, especially in my profession, that people look at the muzzle as a, as you said, like as a negative, where it can be a huge positive because we can, just as you've, you know, just said, we can allow the dog to, you know, have those chances at making positive connections, and you know, as well, the human side of it. Right. If if somebody feels uncomfortable, and they just they can't bring themselves to allow the the dog to to have those opportunities. And I'm saying to them, look, your dog is, I feel that your dog is at this point that we can start to incorporate this. Right. Not muzzle training already on board or suggesting let's work on muzzle training for, for the time being. It helps that person to relax and allow the dog to have those opportunities. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, and you're giving 
them the opportunity to experience and explore things that maybe otherwise they would never be able to do, right? Um, and yeah, so yeah, so that's how the muscle training thing started. <laughs> Well, good. I thought he looked adorable. And I think, you know, I made a point of, of posting that and sharing that post because I think we have to stop that, that stigma of looking at a, a muzzled dog and going, oh, you know, and the more people that see cute, vibrant, you know, the colors and, and the fact that, you know what, he looks adorable in it. Like right, it doesn't yeah. change him. It, you know, right. he doesn't instantly become some kind of, you know, monster dog because he has this uh, muzzle on, like right. it hasn't changed him. It's, it's allowed him to have more freedom and more opportunities. Yep. It's positive. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, um, on a related note, one of the things that I, um, was probably the most kind of profound moment in my consultation um, with, with Michael, which was, I guess, about a year ago now, is he actually asked me a very simple question. And like, to this, I think it kind of changed my whole perception of like how I need to advocate for him. And, he, and all he did was ask me, how big is Harold's world? And, and, you know, and I was like, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, how many people could freely walk in there right now with you sitting on the couch and he'd be perfectly fine. And, you know, this was just only a couple of months after I had adopted him. And I thought, my God, like, I literally can't think of anybody, not even the people that he knows that would be able to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I thought his world is is so small. And then no wonder that this dog has owner guarding behaviors right and this is his world there is nothing else he doesn't care about you know you taking his toys or even taking his food you know for him like his world was just you know our little walks together at the shelter and just our like relationship and companionship and so it's you know on part of me is like, oh, Harold, that's so, that's so, that's so sweet. But it's heartbreaking, right? Yeah. It's heartbreaking that that's how little his world is. And so, you know, in in just a year's time, like I said, you know, anyone in my family can walk in to, um, and say hello to him. I don't have to be on on guard. Like he's perfectly fine. Most everyone he knows can do that as well. I. There's not this constant, you know, um, I guess, anxiety of, you know, is he okay? Is he gonna, you know, do something? And, and that's because I, I've gotten to a point where if I see, you know, his neck get, get a little longer and he kind of pauses and looks back at me slowly, I say, okay, we don't have to do that. And that's kind of how we've managed that. And, and slowly, even if I hadn't done much more than that. Um, in terms of training, I, I think he's at a place right now where his world is huge. You know, I mean, he, there's pretty much nothing that I can't do with him that I wouldn't with any other dog. Yeah. But I beautiful. do that, but I do that on a, you know, still with, on, on a cautious level. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, every dog, a lot of people will say to me, like, how long until I can trust my dog with my baby? How long can I trust my dog with right. my kids? And it's like, never. Like, this right, is yeah, never. Yeah, it's 
the moment you come become complacent and that's when situations happen and you are protecting your dog as much as you are protecting your your children so no i mean my both of my dogs they don't really pay attention to kids too much but there is no way that I would just, you know, have a have a child come over or vice versa, go into a, a home with a child and not have a management strategy in place for that situation. Yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes um, what I struggle with, especially with with kids when they try to come up to him. And, you know, people will ask whether or not they can pet your dog in a weird way. So like sometimes people will say, oh, does he bite? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I and I say, well, he can. He can. And sometimes I say, yeah, he can. Would you like to pet him? (laughs) Right. But but, but (laughs) that should be the answer for every dog. You know, I mean. If you approach me the wrong way, also, yes, I can bite, (laughs) but, but it's okay for, you know, for us to shake hands right now. And so I, you know, but again, it's, there's disadvantages and advantages of, of doing that one. I think it's just kind of the education piece of, of you should approach every dog in that way. Right. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I do have a moment where I wonder like, does that person walk away and say, Oh, look, here's another pit bull that is probably, you know, a dog with some issues or something. And and the irony is that he, at this point, really doesn't have those issues anymore, but I will continue to do all the things that I've been doing to get him to that point. Absolutely. And I want to just say that, you know, hearing you talk about the compromise, the, the communication is just absolutely beautiful. And I couldn't help but smile <laughs> so big when you said that his world is, is big now, because that's, that's all we ever want for every dog. We just, right. want, whether their world is medium or, you know, slightly small or whatever, just for that to be their, their optimal life in, in whatever situation, whatever kind of, you know, chapter that they're, that they're in. So, I mean, can uh, I just, that's beautiful to me. I really, that's made my, my whole, okay. I think. Oh. <laughs> um, so you have a social media account for him, which is how I, how I found you. And uh, I mean, do you, do you feel that that kind of outlet is harmful with so much misinformation about, you know, dogs and social media and, and bully breeds in general? Like, do you get trolled? Do you get, you know, people kind of, are people more positive or, or negative towards your, your kind of social media? I think for the most part, um, it's been very positive. Um, but I also think that the kind of people that are that are going to follow him are probably animal lovers, right? So uh, for the most part, you know, the people that he, he slash I <laughs> interact with um, <laughs> on, on his account tend to be ones that are already... Um, kind of on, on board and, you know, love pit bulls and rescue and all of that. Um, and so I think for, there's been some like trolling, some negative comments here and there, um, especially, you know, especially when I post like a picture of him in a muzzle or, you know, I share a story about him, you know, or I praise him for doing something, 
good in a situation where he's, you know, struggled with before he's met some kind of milestone and people are a little kind of asking questions about that or surprised that, you know, that's an issue or whatever else. Um, I think the negative co comments at first and some of the trolling um, was probably um, the worst shortly after his little video came out about him getting adopted on the dodo, right? And so I would get messages occasionally from people. Um, one that I remember specifically was a woman that um, told me I was irresponsible, that it was only a matter of time before he um, got out and mauled a kid or killed an animal in the neighborhood. Um, and that, you know, all of them should just be euthanized and all, you know, all, so it, all of those sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> for the most part, I ignore those kind of messages. Um, sometimes when it's, when it's a comment that is more specific and I know that there's like data out there or, or science to disprove the point, I will just send them a friendly link to a credible source to try to, 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 try to educate <laughs> them a, a little bit more, but I leave it at that. that. Do they come back to you well-educated or? <laughs> um, you know, well, usually then ends up being, you know, a, a argument that is like a logical fallacy. Well, my cousin had a pit bull and it did this, or, you know, what about this news story or blah, blah. So it's, at that point, you know that there's not, no evidence that you can present that that person, you know, they're not going to accept the evidence, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think in those situations, it's just best to move on. Um, when occasionally when there's a negative comment, um, people, people really, um, Harold has a lot of people that really care about him. And usually those negative comments um, others reply and go to his defense before I even see it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I handle that. But, but for the most part and overwhelmingly, the response has been, um, I would say like 95 to 98% positive. And I can't tell you how many um, messages I've received about from people you know, saying that, you know, they've been inspired to adopt a dog, um, you know, from a shelter, you know, whatever else. And I also think he has a unique platform. Um, and, you know, a lot of people do um, follow his story. So often when we foster, um, we're able to um, share some of those stories and those dogs find homes. So I think, you know, in addition to saving those six puppies at the shelter, he, you know, continues to have a really good impact on finding homes, you know, for other dogs. Um, but one of the things that I'm careful about and I, I want to do more of, but I, I know that I have to do it in a kind of strategic way because of, you know, some of the misinformation and nastiness that happens online. Um, is that I do want to be able to use Harold as an example to educate people on some of these, th some of these things, right? So 
I purposely post a picture of him in a muzzle because it, you know, it's not just taking a, cause I, I, I don't think Harold is, would be an appropriate dog for every person. Right. And it would be naive to think that you can, you know, take him and bring him into a family home and just let him be and think it's, you know, it's going to all be great. Cause if you're not going to be willing to help him along the journey, then that's not the right dog for you. Um, so I also don't want people to be naive of what some of these more challenging cases require. Um, I just hope that people don't necessarily link that specifically to um, pit bulls and other bully breeds, right? But um, but at the same time, you know, unless you know those kind those breeds have kind of you know an uphill uh, battle in terms of overcoming those stereotypes because. You know, especially in the area where we live, we have very, uh, we don't have like spay and neuter laws, right? And a lot of these dogs, um, you know, whether it's, you know, nature, nurture, a combination of, of the two, unfortunately, our shelters are overflowing with these, with, with these kinds of dogs. Um, and or a lot of, you know, bully um, bully breeds and, and, you know, obviously for the majority of the cases, they're not, at, they, they don't have, um, challenges like Harold did, you know, some, they're all great dogs and I strongly advocate people adopt. Um, but you, you know, you have to do it in a way where you're able to be matched with the right dog for your home and your lifestyle and your circumstances. Um, and so, you know, when you go into a shelter and you see like a Herald and you hear his history, some of the stereotypes I think get perpetuated because the fact is that people are overbreeding them. There are so many of them you know, they end up in shelter. So they, you know, just to use your analogy earlier, like their bucket is full, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it, it's going to take more than just, you know, edu educating the, the public on, hey, you know, these, these dogs aren't any more likely to have behavioral issues than some of these other ones that, we're not discussing, but many of them do come from crappy backgrounds and they have that working against them. And then unfortunately that then confirms some of the biases that people have. Absolutely. I think, you know, especially with his, his breed type and things, there, there are a lot of misconceptions about, about these types of dogs or even I think sometimes when we look at you know, advertising or um, maybe popular celebrities and the types right. of that, that they keep in and stuff. But every dog has the potential to have behavioral concerns exactly. similar to or, you know, exactly like what Harold, what Harold has. And mm -hmm. 
when we stop thinking about the dog necessarily in in the way that he or she looks and more about like you said trying to find the right fit if you are going to adopt because equally i hear a lot of people who maybe have rescued dogs um, previously and it's it's a common kind of comment for them to say oh i wish i would have you know bought a dog or i wish i would have um you know got a puppy and i think just as you you know mentioned nature and nurture there is you could equally have behavioral concerns with a dog that you fresh at eight weeks you know you don't know especially if you haven't looked into the lineage of that dog or you know a lot of times they only see one parent and then we later find out when we're assessing the dog that oh by the way the dad did have some issues with maybe guarding or something you know um anxiety generally and if you don't look at those things, you could end up with the exact same same, same issue. Yeah, I mean, and you know, not to harp back on the parallel between healthcare and and dog training, but it's no different than what you would see, you know, doing like a psychological evaluation. Like there there are people that have a laundry list of mental health issues, and if you were to look at their, you know, history great family upbringing, nothing that would, that you could maybe directly attribute to leading to these things, right? Um, but here they are with all the, you know, with all these issues for one, for whatever reason, maybe partly, you know, DNA, maybe whatever kind of experiences they've had before, but it might be somebody that you would not expect to be presenting with all these kind of challenges on a mental health aspect, right? And then you have others that have gone through incredible trauma that are thriving, you know? And then there's some, some you know, overlap in between. And so I think, I think what, I would, what I would hope people would do more, more of rather than focus on, you know, these kind of stereotypes is to assess each case individually. Because just like with people, it's, it's, it's just on an individual basis. Yes. And even when I think sometimes when people have adopted maybe foreign dogs or, and they're surprised that these dogs come, you know, with behavioral issues or even puppies, you know, we have Mm -hmm. in the UK over here, we have a lot of foreign rescues that come in and they're coming in around four months old and four months old is, is a critical period for dogs developmentally. And they're having these these behavioral concerns and people are shocked because they're you know it's a puppy like why why should my puppy be having these issues and you're just like you don't know what trauma that dog has gone through before it's landed on your doorstep and having worked in rescue before it's there are some things and people don't always have the history right so a lot of times clients are saying oh I just wish that I knew what happened to him because then that it would make sense. And it's like, but it doesn't matter anymore. It, right. And uh, I'm so glad you said that because it, I mean, when we do therapy, right. Often there's like this misconception that, well, you know, well, tell me about your mother. Right. Like, <laughs> let's, get, let's, let's get down to the, but first let me lay moment, on the couch. <laughs> right. Let's have you lay on the on the couch and tell me about your mother. Um, and the joke always is, um, you know, whether it's nature or nurse or nurture, it's always your mother's fault, right? <laughs> but <laughs> but um, 
you know, how, how we approach therapy with people is to deal like in the here and now, what are the presenting like behavioral issues and how do, how do we address them? And whatever the history is of how they came about, um, I mean, surely that can be, you know, that helps in assessing the, the situation and understanding things maybe a, a little bit better, but in terms of how the treatment is, is developed, it'll make very little difference, right? Yeah. The behavioral intervention will probably still be the, still be the same, whether it was your mother or, you know. And equally, I think- in, in my profession, we have a lot of times people have tried, they tried aversive methods or they've been to someone who they thought, quote unquote, was a professional. And mm -hmm. that person has recommended and and tried these these types of methods. And then they the behavior gets worse or, you know, something happens yeah. and then they decide or maybe they have like a, a moral kind of um, epiphany and they decide, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And they feel a lot of guilt around that. And that can almost consume them. So especially in my work, I will tell people, you know, try not to, that was the information you had at the time. That was right. your trust in that person. From now on, what we were doing is we're forgetting that. We're forgetting that we're moving on from this point. It's a fresh, officially. so no matter what happened, you know, the guilt that you hold, you, you will probably have some of that guilt because it's, it's human nature to hold on to some of that guilt. But at the same time, we're moving forward. That's it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and I think, um, you know, similarly in, you know, therapy with, with humans, like I tell patients, you know, all the time, and especially when you're dealing with um, like people that have maybe had some, you know, abuse that they didn't speak up or, you know, whatever the case may be, or maybe something completely different, but, you know, they wish they would have made different choices. And, you know, I just, usually just try to remind people and even just in, you know, day-to-day -day life, like we all do the best we can with what resources we have in the context we're in, right? And so the thing that you can do to remedy that is, you know, once you know better, you can do better. And, and that's where the success comes in. Like you're all, you know, in some ways you can almost use that to your advantage because now you know what didn't work you've got you have more information maybe more than somebody that had done it perfectly from start to finish you know i mean and even think about you know parents and raise you know how they raise kids no parent is going to do things perfect across the board at some point in life you're going to do something that's going to mess up your kid but part <laughs> of that you know part part of that is is normal too you know so that, you know, I think we could all be hard on our, ourselves for not always doing the right thing. I know I'm not always doing, you know, as much as I try, I can't al always do the right thing with Harold because I'm not a dog trainer, right? So I, I try to do, do the best I can, find the resources that I know are credible, use whatever knowledge I have on behavioral, um, like theory, but I'm not going to do everything perfect. I can look back at the dogs I've had in the past. And I think to myself, man, what was I thinking? Right? <laughs> like, why, why did I do that? Um, so, yeah, so, but you know, you, you move forward and you learn from those situations. And 
it's a constant assessment, just like, you know, in, in therapy, it's never going to be just this, you know, path toward straight line towards improvement. It goes up and down, but those, those mistakes and those challenges are opportunities to learn more and improve the treatment from there on out. Yeah. I love telling people, you know what, if, if we take one step forward in that right direction, that's, that's the direction we're headed. So don't worry about how fast right. it is, but worry that yes, that is the direction we were headed and we're moving that direction. That's all we can do right now. Yep. Absolutely. So do you feel like the, the stereotypes around bully breeds, do you feel like that's getting better? I, I do think that's getting better. Um, I think, well, I, well, I have a couple of thoughts about that. I think it's getting, <laughs> I think it's getting better. Um, I think that, you know, those that, um, love bully breeds, love them fiercely and like, will defend them <laughs> to, to the end. Um, I do think it, it's getting better. I don't think that it's getting better quickly enough. Um, and like I said, I think until, you know, just like addressing the healthcare issue of getting people to use evidence-based treatments and correcting some of the misinformation about, you know, different interventions, it's the same thing with, correcting stereotypes, right? Like we have, everyone has their own biases. And then maybe you see an article on the news that some kid was, you know, bitten by a whatever dog and everyone assumes it's, you know, some kind of vicious pit bull or, you know, whatever. Um, and then that just kind of reaffirms their prior belief. So there's a lot of confirmation bias. Like you ignore all the good things and all the, you know, pit bulls that are out there and bully breeds that are out there that are perfectly great dogs, but one has a mishap and then that just confirms whatever stereotype someone may be, um, may be having. But I think in order to correct some of those stereotypes and to make headways, um, we just need more, you know, responsible owners. But again, that's, that applies to every dog. Um, so I don't know if I have the answer of how we address it. I do think that we've come a long way. I know in some um, cities they have ended like the um, breed restriction laws and those kind of things, right? But I think I think there's a lot. It's there's still a very long road ahead in in addressing this issue. And the other issue too is, I mean, especially in the area that I'm in, a lot of people that would like to adopt one of these dogs or, you know, have a, um, a dog that's, you know, some kind of bully breed. If, if they're renting a lot of those, um, landlords and, and places don't allow bully breeds, right? So then people have to surrender them, um, surrender them to the shelter and, you know, there's, it, it's, yeah, it's just hard. And so I think to finally really make headway, um, in addressing those stereotypes, it would have to be addressed on multiple levels. Education mm -hmm. for, you know, educating people would be one way. Um, 
addressing overpopulation issue would be another, and then getting rid of these ineffective um, breed specific legislations that are out there. Yeah, I think also changing the meme, you know, the meme about bully breeds, the kind of the stereotypical, they're, you know, kind of a little bit stubborn and all these other right. things that we put on dogs. Yes. Um, yeah. I yeah. It's all, it's all cute, but it, I think it feeds it, you know, feeds into that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so when you were looking, I know you're, it's a little bit difficult to kind of <laughs> take your, your professional cap off, but when you were looking at information, how, okay. how did you discern between kind of what, what you think might have been a, a good source of information and mm -hmm. what was an absolute immediate no? Um, so what was an absolute immediate no for me? Um, I guess it, in, in two ways. For, so first, just kind of my experience with my relationship with Harold would be one. And that, again, I set out just to, even if I couldn't train him to be any, you know, to address any of these issues, all I wanted was for this dog to have a more enjoyable life. Um, and so with that in mind, a lot of the information that, you know, that is out there and some of like the, you know, so-called balanced training methods where like punishment is used, um, that to me was something that I was not, um, that I didn't see as an effective tool in making sure that Harold had an enjoyable life. And again, in his particular situation, I couldn't wait or, you know, I didn't want to set him up for failure, wait for him to mess up and then correct the behavior, right? Like that was, so that was not an option for me. And I also just you know, remembered even from my undergraduate um, behavior and learning class that of, you know, of the four quadrants of operant condition, <laughs> operant conditioning punishment is the least effective. Mm. Um, so some of, I think just my, I know I was supposed to take off my <laughs> professional cap, <laughs> but um, Part of so part of it was just in a relation from a relationship perspective. I didn't see a dog that was aggressive. I saw a dog that was fearful and scared, and he didn't know what to do. So I wanted to unteach him things rather, and you know, kind of make better association, more positive associations rather than um, correct him for his mistakes. Right. So I that's why I had the idea of, you know, getting an RV and living off the land. So if I couldn't do any of that, we could just manage his environment so that it would be enjoyable. Um, and, and so it was just about making sure that he had the best life he could, even if we didn't do anything else. Um, but once I started to look at the information that was out there, um, you know, I guess it's hard for me to think about how how I would have navigated that process because I think much of my background was the reason why I knew like, okay, this doesn't make sense to me from a behavioral standpoint, right? And so unless 
some different behavioral theory applies to dogs, this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, and, but even, even with that in mind, I, I then started to look at um, like peer reviewed articles. I looked at um, sources that were, or references that were listed. Um, I mean, I read a lot of articles on like psychology today. Um, there's actually a lot of, you know, great articles about dog training there. And then I would look up the original um, articles that were referenced in, in those, um, in, in those papers. And so I, I don't know if I have a way of answering that question um, in a way that I would take away some of that background information that I have, but I, but I do remember feeling even, I do remember feeling completely overwhelmed even having that background and having the ability to interpret research, right? So I, I literally could not make the connection between, you know, why is everyone, and, you know, again, like why, why is the information that we have like on TV and all these, you know, kind of revered trainers, why are they doing, why are they using a different approach that doesn't coincide with what we know out there? And surely are there people advocating for the, you know, appropriate kind of interventions? Like why isn't that getting, why isn't that information available, right? And then I think the other, the other thing that made me just start to ignore some of, you know, the information that, you know, you know, someone on Facebook has an uncle that worked with dogs all his life, and he knows that this is what you're supposed to do. Um, one of the, I think, reasons why I started to just ignore some of that information and not take it, take it into account um, because I made the, because I made kind of the connection that like, hey, this is exactly what we de deal with in healthcare. Like, no, like the, you know, whatever um, herbal weird remedy someone is trying to, you know, sell on, on Facebook isn't going to cure cancer, right? Like these aren't effective interventions. We know what works, yet there's all of these people that don't use the interventions that work, but buy into some of these seemingly quick fixes. And so when I had the realization that this was a very similar issue in the dog training world, um, that's when I just started to look more at the kind of academic literature um, and then found like credible trainers to follow on Instagram, like your account and a couple of others and um, just stuck to the science. Yeah, I think it's really hard. And you, yeah, I mean, what you said about feeling overwhelmed, there's sometimes where I, I'm very choosy. I like to like, um, I like to look at balanced trainers. I like to see what's, what's the information out there and what people are, what are people seeing? What are they getting? Um, right. and 
also how could I, I like to, to play kind of, you know, pretend. And I think, how would I have handled that situation? Or what we, what could we have done in that situation to make that that better? And it's, it's one of those situations where I have to be in the right frame of mind in order to, to do that. I don't follow any of them. I don't, you know, because if I, <laughs> my bucket can become full where I just get right. really overwhelmed with the whole situation and feel kind of hopeless. And, right. um, and I can imagine someone from a, you know, a standing point of not having any background information or education. Absolutely looking at that and looking at what I do or looking at what other people and even between I mean there's a a joke and I think it's something like get three trainers together and what can you get them to agree on um and that you know the other one's wrong or something like that right (laughs) there are some kind of nuances of of things that people present and I think oh you know that's not exactly how I would do but at the end of the day it's so far removed from what I'm looking at from, from these balance trainers that I, I see how people just, they don't know what to do. They don't know who to believe. Right. They don't know what to do. They don't know what's the right thing for their dog. And people do, they question me sometimes. I've had clients where they say, well, I saw this on TV. We have in, in the UK, I don't know if they have it over there, but we have um, this, this dog, dog father. Um, it's kind of like a, a, a caesar-esque kind of yes. program but it's it's british um british british wide um and it's people say all the time oh did you see that and i'm like oh i see right. it but at the same time it's not something that i want my clients to be exposed to because if right. they're dealing with the same same issue that they saw on tv and they're saying, well, why can't I do this, you know, method or right. ask about this or a head collar or, you know, all these other kind of things. And I'm thinking, you know, th- I, I can't compete with somebody who is on TV showing you and within six weeks or whatever right. you know, time frame, um, I can't compete with that. I can't tell you when, when we're going to help your dog feel better. I can't make this, you know, issue something that is has a time frame at all right um yeah and and I think again you know that kind of goes I mean it kind of goes back I think to the science literacy part of it right and just because if you know sometimes people will um like I'll sometimes engage foolishly engage in like a debate online about some you know kind of um science-based article maybe it's about vaccines or you know whatever and you provide them with you know credible evidence like here's the original source this is what it says and if you know it's like well I can't you can't go back to like the very basics and if we can't if we're not on the same page about just like the fundamental understanding of how behavioral theory works then how how do you even approach some of these you know more complex topics right like if if the basics aren't there absolutely you know what i mean no i mean the four quadrants come up in almost every single conversation right and, you know that's everyone's kind of go to like there are four quadrants so we have we have four opportunities to help the dog and and you know people who use or professionals who use 
only positive reinforcement, they're cutting off those other quadrants and that's not right. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and then the other thing is that I think some of um, some of the, you know, I guess you could call them balance trainers or whatever. Um, I mean, I used to make the joke like, man, like you think there's a lot of drama in between like mental health professionals, like you should look at people in, you know, in the dog industry. I mean, it is like, it is vicious. Like I, I don't know how, how people would you just like manage, you know, day to day. But one of the things that I've noticed is that the, the balance trainers will have, you know, will say things like, well, it doesn't work for these kind of dogs, or those people are just cookie pushers, or, you know, you're always going to have to have a treat or, you know, whatever, or rewarding the behavior, you know, rewarding, a, you know, a dog when it's scared or something doesn't work. And I'm like, wait, wait, like, none of that is actually like consistent with what we know about classical conditioning, operant conditioning, right? So there's just this, I think, idea that unless you're being more forceful, you're almost being like permissive and your dog and it's just, you know, here dog, do whatever you want to. And it and I don't know if people have a good enough understanding of just these behavioral principles. And if they've tried them and it hasn't worked, then just like in therapy, you reassess, you modify the treatment and you keep going, but it, it doesn't but basic behavioral principles have never failed. Like that is how behavioral behavior works, right? And the fallout of using punishment. I mean, I have a whole folder that I, I of articles that shows us exactly, you know, what happens. And I think that was part of Harold's issue initially too. Like that's why it kept, you know, it seemed like he didn't have, a, you know, any warning, right? It, it was just zero, to, you know, six feet in the air, air snapping at people, you know? And so I think part of that is because with correcting his behavior, and I don't know his, you know, prior adopters, what kind of methods that they used, like, well, now you're just suppressing his behavior that you might not like, like growling, but under, but now he's still super anxious. He's still scared of that person. You haven't addressed that issue at all. Yeah. I just feel that when we when we kind of have these lookouts of, you know, balance trainers and and they present all this, you know, content on social media and it's all very quick and it looks, you know, just rough and catchy and people are they're drawn into that. I get it. I you know, I get how that can look appealing, but at the end of the day, what we're doing to our dogs, it isn't right. It's it's yeah. not helping either are or their situation yeah absolutely and yeah and i mean and i've watched some of those videos too right and i'm like man i wish my i wish my dog would do that but you you can obtain all of those things and more without the emotional fallout in a much more effective way absolutely yeah well, what would you say is kind of your your advice when people are looking at at these kind of studies? So I, for instance, when I went to university, they told they told me 
read the abstract and read okay. the conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> and then okay. if it was, if it, you know, kind of, if you get the grips of it and you want to go further, then go ahead and read the rest of the study. Yeah. Would you, how well, would you suggest that people might approach it if they wanted to? Well, I don't know who your um, professor was, but that is very similar <laughs> advice that I give <laughs> my students because um, one of the classes that I teach is research methods. And so when I tell them, you know, okay, start your literature review, I say, read the abstract, the last paragraph of the intro to know what the hypothesis is, and then the first paragraph of the discussion or the conclusion section. And yeah. then, and then if you're, you know, if this is something in the realm of what you're looking for, then, you know, the methods is, you know, is important, but I know that that is a little bit more difficult for, um, you know, someone maybe not in that field or um, used to I reading. Sometimes they're just difficult in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, but at, but at minimum, I would recommend, you know, abstract, um, last paragraph of the intro, because that will tell you like the main objective of that particular study, then the first paragraph of the discussion or conclusion, because that'll be a nice little summary of the results. Mm -hmm. But also, um, usually like the next to the last paragraph of the discussion is the limitation section. And that will be where the researcher will say things like, you know, even though results indicate that, you know, X is related to Y, whatever it is they're studying, um, results should be interpreted with caution and in a different context, maybe it's different, blah, blah, blah. So it'll, it'll highlight some of the nuances, right? of what those results may actually mean in a more practical um, real, real world um, scenario. Yeah, I might, I might make that into, you might, um, I might be contacting you later so I can add that into an infographic because I think that's really useful information for people okay. because when you look at a study, it just can sometimes feel, I know when I first started going back into education, it can feel somewhat intimidating to look at it. Oh, and go, absolutely. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what are they, what are they saying? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But definitely in the areas that you've discussed, they are very tidy and it's very, it, it's very clear when you, when you just kind of focus on those specific areas that you can go, yeah. ah, okay. Yeah. I, I get that. Yeah. But, and, and what I tell my students is like, you know, there's, if, if you want to, you know, if you're just interested in the take home message of the article, well, then that's where you would go, right? But as a scientist, like if the purpose of, you know, having a, you know, peer reviewed research article in a journal is to provide enough detail that another scientist could read that study and replicate it and see if they get the same results, right? So there's so much information that is in there that, maybe beyond what the average person needs to know in order to really understand what um, what the findings were. Yeah. So we've been talking about Harold, <laughs> but tell us a little bit about who he is, like his character and his personality and stuff that he likes and dislikes. Well, Harold, um, in, in short, he is perfect. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, so, you know, there's no doubt about it that he is a, he is a quirky guy. Um, but he, I think the best or the cutest thing about him or with the thing that I appreciate about him the most 
is that he is very adaptable, especially like just to, you know, like my lifestyle. So he, and I think it's just because we have such a good relationship, like if I'm, if I'm working, then he's just, you know, next to me laying on the couch, relaxing. But if we want to go do something active, he's like on board and right there with me. Um, he more and more, he has um, like two huge bins of toys and he'll dig through them. And then he proudly like shows them off to me and he'll go get another one. So he's, and at this point, I think he's about, I've been saying he's seven or eight, but I've been saying that for two years now. So I don't really know how old he is, but he's somewhere around that age. Um, But he is so playful that he almost reminds me of a puppy. Whereas, you know, when I saw him at the shelter and shortly after I adopted him um, and like in my mind, I used to think of him as like Eeyore from like the Winnie the Pooh because he was just kind of this like gray, sad looking dog. And um, I remember the first time I brought him to my parents' house, my dad was like, this dog has no personality because he just I mean, he did not show any kind of excitement about anything. He, he was just there. Um, and so my favorite thing is just to see him get excited about like a new toy. Um, he, my sister lives a couple doors down. One of his favorite things to do is just like sit by the door. He'll like give a little wine and like a little whimper. And that lets me know that he wants to go visit her. So he'll go over there. Um, and he just, I mean, he loves adventures. Like I try to think of at least like one or two little activities like every day or every two days so that he can see something new and explore. Um, We do a lot of enrichment activities. So I have a closet full of different puzzles for him that he just goes crazy over. Um, So yeah, so that's, those are all the things he likes. Um, His dislikes, you know, other than um, him being uncomfortable with new people entering um, his home, he now will accept them into the home. But again, we just have the management piece there so that he can, you know, slowly see that, you know, everything is fine. Um, but yeah, all, I mean, all, all around, he's just, you know, a great dog. And if I had the ability to like design a perfect dog, it would be Harold, even with his quirks and all. Um, so that's Harold. <laughs> it's so it's so funny because I often describe. I mean, both you know, dogs are just perfect in general. But I often described um, Nero as as the perfect dog because I think he's kind of he's very similar in the situation that you're talking about with with Harold. Like Nero sleeps a lot. He likes his comforts. But if we're if we're going out and I say you know hey do you want to go on an adventure he's like let's go right yeah I'm up for it (laughs) he's like I'm ready I'm ready let's go it's fine um yeah so yeah he's just I mean he is he's just very in tuned I would say he's a very he's very like he's a very sensitive dog like he he just picks up very much on like things in the environment and and those sorts of things and so I think that has also been important for like our relationship together because we always kind of match each other's vibes yeah 
And that's a good fit. When you were talking about, you know, finding a dog who fits, who fits you, you kind of, you know, there's a bit of, with every good relationship, there's a bit of compromise and give and take. And you kind of melt into this really nice place where you do have that ability to kind of, you know, flex a little bit on either side, on on either side in the relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. It has been a pleasure speaking to you. I, <laughs> like oh, yeah, I, said, no, I did I not it. know your your history, so um, it's yeah, that was that was quite a nice little little egg there. <laughs> you know, I appreciate it, and I yeah, I I appreciate the invite to do this, and um, yeah, it was great speaking with you. Absolutely. Do you have any kind of last? maybe advice or comments um, about people who are maybe looking at training for their dog? Um, something you would think maybe like a takeaway message maybe? Um, sh- um, sure, actually, you know, I think, and I, um, I would say that, and this applies, and I, or at least I'm pulling this from kind of my, you know, professional, um, kind of background and experiences, but, you know, in, in therapy, we have this idea of meeting the patient where they're at, right? So whether it's, you know, working with someone that is very anxious, or maybe they have PTSD, um, you move the therapy along in a, in a way or at the pace where that person is comfortable, but maybe just slightly, you know, out of the bounds of that to where they're able to make progress. Um, and you, cer- you would certainly never, you know, force them to kind of speed the process along. Um, so you always just want to meet the patient where they're at in therapy. And that makes for the most successful outcome um, it, with any intervention. And I think we should do the same with dogs. Absolutely. Right. Thank you so much, Marlene. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and learning about you and, and equally learning about Harold. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, it's been great. Harold has been sound asleep um, next to me this whole time. So I hope I, I didn't bore him too much, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's been great speaking with you. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys, for joining me here at the Dog Logical Podcast. I hope that you had a great time listening to this episode and learned a little bit along the way. Don't forget, if you liked this episode, share it with a friend and leave us a review. Thanks again, guys, and see you next time.